Church. I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subjects to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca together, with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to pray over us. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful morning to gather together, coming right after celebrating Easter and your resurrection and, and dying for us, God. And I just pray that our hearts would be open to you this morning, that any veil that's over our eyes or over our hearts where we don't really want to step in or hear what you're saying to us now, God, that we would just step through that, God, and we would be open and ready to hear exactly what you have to say to us this morning. We just thank you for what you're going to do and the word that you're bringing through Josh. And um, I just pray blessing over this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, my. Guys, how's it going? Can you hear me? Welcome, so glad you guys are here this morning. Um, if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, there's always Bibles on the by the entrance to the theater, and I'd love for you to grab one of those if you don't have a Bible and take that home with you. Um, but guys, this morning, uh, we are finishing the letter of 1 Corinthians. We've been in this letter since fall, and... Uh, I don't know about you, it's been awesome. I mean, but it's also been really hard at times, really convicting, really challenging. And for me, it's just been so awesome to hear 
all the things that God's been doing in your guys' lives. It's been really encouraging to me. And so I hope this letter has been really encouraging in your life. Um, but beginning next week, uh, we're going to be starting um, in the prophet of Jonah. And so I hope you guys will be here for that. Um, should be a really exciting uh, four weeks in Jonah. And so um, I also don't know about you guys, but um, I have a knack for botching song lyrics um, my entire life, I, I love music, okay, I love music, and my entire life, um, when I hear a song, what I like about the song is the beat, it's the rhythm, it's the melody, it's the instrumentation, and that's what I'm drawn in by, and that's what I pay attention to, and so my entire life then, I've not really consciously paid attention to the lyrics, and so I make up lyrics, basically, two songs, and I don't even think about it, and so really, for most of my life, my wife has made a lot of fun of me. Uh, or my sisters growing up, because I would be belting out a song and not even thinking about it, and I would just be way off base, and they would point it out to me. Um, so case in point for you here, a little exercise I did this week. There's an old 90s song, it was constantly on the radio, called Want You Back. It was by like a one-time wonder, I think named Take Back or something, I don't know, something like that. It was, they were one-hit wonder, no one remembers them, okay? But there's this song, Want You Back, and the lyrics went like this. Uh, she says, whatever I said, whatever I did, I didn't mean it. I just want you back for good. I want you back, want you back, want you back for good, okay? Beautiful, right? I mean, my Lord, right? I can see why it was the top <laughs> of the hits, you know? And, uh, but this is what I thought the song would say. Whatever I said, whatever I did, I didn't mean it. I just want you back for good. So far, so good. Nailing it, okay? Beautiful, belting it out. One day, my sister heard me belt out the next line, watch your back, watch your back, watch your back for good, right? I changed one word of the song, and I turned a beautiful, loving guy pleading for the love of his life to come back. I turned that song into a threat, you know? Like, just with a switch of one word, it completely got way off base, didn't it? Down a whole other path. Right, this is why I don't write songs, nonetheless. Right, I, that's what I did to this song. Just a switch of one little word. Guys, there's a word that we switch often when it comes to our understanding of what church is and what church does. And when we switch the word, we get way off base. And you might nod your head this morning, but it's my, my hope and my prayer that we would see not only how we make this switch, but how much it impacts our lives when we do. We, we change what church is, what church is all about. Guys, church is about the we. It's about doing life together. It's what 1 Corinthians has been all about. It's about the we. But often we, we change the word we and we switch it to me. And when we do that, we get off into very dangerous and unhelpful places when it comes to our Christian life and when it comes to what the church even is and the impact it makes on our lives in the world. And that's exactly what the church in Corinth had done. They had received the grace of God and they started running with it. And they're saying, I'm free, I can do whatever I want with it now. And we've walked through this letter and we've seen people indulging in things that God says that's not good. We've seen people act in free ways without thinking about how that affects other people around them. This is what the church in Corinth has done. They've changed church from a we thing to a me thing. 
And I think when you get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 here, the first thing that probably stands out to you when this is read over you by Jessica is that you, you, you're keenly aware right away. You're confronted with the reality that, and you remember that this is a letter, isn't it? This is like that chapter you get to, you're like, oh yeah, this is a letter. Because all of a sudden you have all these names, all these people, all these plans being made, right? And you have all these greetings and all these like uh, conclusions and stuff like that. You're reminded that it's a letter, that the Bible wasn't first written to me. There was a first audience that the Bible came to. But secondly, what we see here is if we take this letter as a whole, this last chapter is actually a beautiful wraparound to the very beginning of the letter. We, we really see magnified the title of this sermon series. We are see a practical walking and talking example that the Christian life and the church itself, it is not about me, it's about we, and we are called to do life together, but here we are challenged even further, you guys, to realize that church isn't just about we, it's about the universal us. It's not just about we even, but when we grow further in our maturity, we see how our local church is a part of the greater universal church, and we contribute in our small parts to the universal church's success and health. Now, I'm not going to do what I normally do on a Sunday, and maybe that's good for you, maybe you're sad, I don't know, but I'm not going to, I don't have three points, okay? Um, I originally did, and then I just scrapped it, okay? Um, but nonetheless, what I want to do is just kind of briefly walk through and to see what Paul is calling this church to do to be a part of, because he calls them to be a part of three different things, and he's calling them into this thing, and I want us to see what he's calling them into, but I really just want us to step back and look at the big picture and say why, like why should the church in Corinth function this way, and therefore why should we function as a church in a similar way, and so we see a few things he calls them into. He calls them into generosity. He calls them into church planting, essentially, about being a part of the mission of God in the world and other places, and finally, to hospitality. So we see in verses one through four, he's calling them a generosity. We see in these four verses that Paul is addressing a collection of money that all the churches in the region are participating in. And he's telling them that they should participate in it as well. Even with all their issues, with all their problems, they aren't to push pause, press pause on their generosity while they work out their holiness. Right? Remember, they have all these problems. He's not like, get your act together and then be generous. No, he's like, no, participate now. He tells them in verse 2 that on Sunday, right, when you gather together as a congregation on Sunday, collect all the money, pull it together so it can be sent out to bless the believers in Jerusalem. So Paul's calling them to take up an offering to help the Jerusalem church. For one reason or another, the church in Jerusalem was thought to be amongst the poorest of the churches, and so what we see here is him calling them to planned giving. They're to plan to be generous, which tells us that generosity isn't just a feeling that we get from time to time. It's something that we prayerfully plan and think about. How, how much should we give? That might be what these people in Corinth are asking. Well, Paul says it's different depending on the person. Paul says here to give as each may prosper. That's what he says. What this means is that God uses normal means in our lives, normal common graces in our lives, like your job, your vocation, through the generosity of other people, and he provides for you in your needs. But here he's saying, when you prosper, as each prospers, take your prosperity and plan to figure out what you're going to do with it and how that can impact other people. 
But the, see, the vast majority of us, we have more than enough money to fill our needs. Some of you in college would beg to differ. That's fine, right? But that's, that's what Paul means by this phrase, as each may prosper. Do you see the biblical principle here, though? All that we have is from God. And if God gives us more than we need, it's not merely that I can do things with that personally. It doesn't mean that that's bad or that I shouldn't. But if you're thinking like me, you get an extra 50 bucks, you're like, sweet, now I'm going to get that thing that I have on my list or whatever it is. But there's a biblical principle here that says when God gives us more than we need, principally, God is planning to provide for the needs of other people through you. By giving his people more than they need in their prospering, we might depending on the needs of other people, be generous to them. So this church is supposed to give for the sake of another church that they don't even know, that they don't even do life with. But then secondly, he talks about this idea of, of really church planting or participating with other people in the mission of God outside the city walls of Corinth. We see this in verses five all the way down through verse 12. Paul indicates to them his plans and his desires that he longs to be with them but not in just a passing sort of way. He says in verse seven, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But more than just spend time with him, he desires that they would be part of what God is doing through him in the world. Do you notice that? He desires for them to help him on his way. That's what it says in verse six, to receive Paul and then to help him on his way, that they could send him out, that he could go out and plant more churches reach more people with the gospel in different places. So whether that's through money or sending people or resources along, they're to help him along the way. This church, even with its issues, is to be concerned about the mission of God in the world outside of Corinth. This church, even in its messiness, is called to function as a sending church for Paul. The same is true for Timothy. We see this in verses 10 through 11. He says, to put Timothy at ease to support him as he comes, to do ministry amongst them, but then to help him on his way, to do the same thing, to receive Timothy, to be ministered to by Timothy, and then to send Timothy out to make an impact elsewhere outside of Corinth, to help him do that. The same is true for Apollos in verse 12. We see here this, I think it's interesting, Paul says he strongly urged Apollos to visit them, but it wasn't Apollos' will to go. I, I love that in a weird way. Paul's like, hey, Apollos, you should go to the Corinthian church, and Apollos is like, Corinthians, no thanks. You know, like he just doesn't want to go for some reason. But we're told that Apollos is eventually going to come. So all these people are to be received by this church, to be blessed by this church, but then to support these people and to send them out to make an impact outside of Corinth. All these people, they've had an impact on this church, or they're going to. There's even a guy, Titus, that's going to come eventually. It's not all about Paul. That's what you need to see here. It's not even all about Corinth. That's what we need to see here. Do you notice this? There are many leaders, there's many believers, and they're all on the same team. We're all on the same mission, and they should see themselves on that team as well, even in this, you know, unhelpful state that they're in. They're supposed to receive ministry, and they're to desire to support other people and spread that ministry. Even in the midst of their issues and problems, the mission is not put on pause. Do you see this? They're to be encouraged. They're to be in the know of what Paul's doing and be participants in the gospel spreading outside of Corinth. But then lastly, we see Paul call them towards this familial hospitality. Just look at me in verse, verse 13. It says, be watchful, 
Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Paul tells them in what seems like an out of nowhere place, uh, he gives them all these rapid fire commands, which if you read the whole letter, he's really just kind of summarizing things that he's been telling them all along. He says, be watchful, be alert, sober up. Stand firm in your faith. Don't stand on a different foundation other than your faith. Act like men. What that means is he's not saying act like a bunch of dudes. It's not what he's saying. Uh, this phrase in ancient literature was a way of saying be courageous. For some reason, men were associated with being courageous. It doesn't mean that women aren't courageous. Is what the phrase is being used. I mean, I know that women are extremely courageous. I've seen babies born, okay? My, if this letter written to me... Paul would be saying, Josh, act like Liz, right? Seriously, be courageous, you know? That's what he's saying here, be courageous, but then he says, let all you do be done in love. Let love be the defining virtue, the defining currency with every single action that you make with each other. And once he calls them towards this maturity, he starts listing out all these names and he's reminding them of other people's faith, people like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus who have come from Corinth. They were part of Corinth. They came to faith. They were sent out to be received by Paul and Paul says, they refreshed me and now I'm sending them back to you. They're like sharing family. They're sharing believers. These people are familiar to their community. Whether or not everybody in the church knows who they are, it doesn't matter. They're supposed to receive them. And then he mentions others who are potentially probably strangers, Aquila and Prisca. He's like, hey, Aquila and Prisca, they say hi. They're like, hey, how's it going? You know, all your brothers and sisters, verse 20, they say hi. Greet each other with a holy kiss, right? Sounds weird to us. This is not a romantic thing, trust me. In this culture, there were, there was, this was a type of kissing that wasn't sexual in any way, right? It was a normal way to show acceptance and hospitality, Hence the word holy kiss, right? It's holy. It's not just a kiss, okay? So I don't recommend this. Uh, I don't, I'm not t encouraging you to do this, okay? Just so you know, nobody gets any weird ideas in here, okay? Um, nonetheless, uh, do you see what's happening here at the end? Paul's calling them towards hospitality. He's calling them towards doing life together, receiving people, being refreshed by one another, being greeted by universal brothers and sisters doing everything, everything out of love, which the very definition of love means to have the other person's best interest in mind. So this is what the church is, you guys. It's a, it's a local reality that's a part of a universal whole. They're there to function generously in a planned way for the sake of others. They are to receive, support, see themselves as a part of the greater mission of God in the world. In other words, they are to be receivers, supporters, and senders. They are to be a sending church that impacts other people. They are then to receive friends, acquaintances, and strangers as family. Just receive them as if they know them, to be hospitable to them. All right, so here's the thing, okay? If we read this, which let's just be honest, most of you get to chapter 16, you read it and you're like, 2 Corinthians chapter one, you know, and you just kind of move on. You know, you're like, I don't know these people. And so you just move on, that's what we do. So here's the thing, if we read this, if you hear what I'm saying at all, and it makes a little bit of sense, this is what you're doing. You're nodding your head and you're yawning a little bit. You know, you're like, I know this. 
right? Sounds good. Let's do that, you know? And, and, but think of, just think about this for a second. Just step back. Think about how counterintuitive all this is. Everything he's asking them to do, think about how counterintuitive this is. Because think about our own selves. When we experience any form of prosperity, what do we do? What do we do with it? We, we want to hoard it. We want to save it. If, we're, if we view ourselves as really smart, we spend it on something that we want. And again, that's not necessarily bad. Just saying, just think about what we normally do, what we want, want to do with our prosperity. Think about what we do uh, when we consider the mission of God and the things we should be a part of ministerially, right? What do we do? We don't want to participate in things that directly impact us. We want to do things that make us feel good, things that we can see with our own eyes and go, I did that, right? We want to have the role that we want to have when we do ministry. But here they're being called to do something where what they do will be easily forgotten. It won't be written on the pages of Scripture, and it wasn't. Right? What do we do when we uh, think about the people we are hospitable towards, we receive as family, we love, that we choose to love in every action of our lives? What do we do? We want to spend time with those that we know and that we love. Think about how counterintuitive this chapter is. Just think about it. We can't just yawn and nod and say, yeah, I get it. Because our, our, our normal state of heart shows us that we don't. This is calling you to something that you really can't find in the world, you guys. Because I tend to only care about you if I'm sad about what you're going through, if it's tragic enough for me. And even then, there's so much tragedy nowadays that we've grown numb to that even. Or, or I only will care about you if I need something from you, if you can get me somewhere that I need to go. Or maybe if I'm inspired by you and I want to be friends with you so that I could be more like you, you know? I'm not wired to give others or participate and work with others or to love and receive others. I'm not wired that way unless I'm directly affected by it. So, so if you agree with me that this is just a mere snapshot or a glimpse of what the church does, it does life together, not just for itself, but for the sake of the universal whole, how do we actually change to where I don't just nod and yawn, but where I go, man, how can I do that? How can change actually be affected? Well, you have to ask the why question. Why is Paul calling them to this? Why is church this way? Why is Jesus' church expected to function this way? It's not just an alternative church. Why is it expected to function this way? Well, this is just another example, I think, of how we don't lack information most often. We lack the power to do what we need to do with the information. Most of us don't lack knowing what it is that we need to do. We lack the power to do it. Case in point, yesterday I was reading to my two-year-old daughter Daniel Tiger, this book, Daniel Tiger, um, which is a spinoff of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood if you don't, if you don't have kids, okay? I doubt many of you are watching OPB uh, cartoons. So I'm reading the Daniel Tiger story to Isla, and it's about sharing, okay? And we get to the end of the book, and Daniel Tiger goes, can you share too, or whatever? And I go, Isla, can you share too? And she like nods her little head, you know? I'm like, sweet, we're making progress, this is a good day, right? No joke, we get down, she walks upstairs. Moments later, like maybe a minute later, I hear a blood-curling scream from upstairs, and it's her voice, and she's just screaming the word no 
just the word no, I'm not even going to pretend to try to do it, okay? But I'm like, oh my gosh, who's dying? I run upstairs, and I see her blood, you know, red in the face, screaming at the top of her lungs, white knuckle gripping this toy as she's trying to take it away from her brother. You know, and I'm like, what is going on? And I'm like, Isla, we just talked about this, right? You have the information, right? You even said you want to share, you know? I didn't go through all this with her. What I actually did is I held her hand and I tried not to laugh. (laughs) And internally, I thought to myself, I get it. I totally get it. Because how many times have I read my Bible and I felt inspired and I felt convicted? Man, I want to be more patient today. And then I close my Bible and moments later, what happens? I'm at the end of myself again. I'm like, are you kidding me? I have the information. I lack the power to do what I need to do with the information, right? So what's the why? Well, the power that I lack in what this is, what's going on here is found in the relational change that God has brought into my life. God has brought a relational change between me and God and me and you. My relationship with you has changed if you know Jesus. It's changed dramatically. What's the change? Guys, we are family. We're family. And this is not another moment we just nod our heads and yawn. No, we are family. That's what we're called here. Do you notice how the New Testament uses family language to talk about other believers? And if you talk to anybody who's probably, I don't know, 60 and older maybe, I'm generalizing here, And if you grow up in the church at all around people who are older, you hear them and they go, hey, brother, hey, sister. And if you're younger, you might just go, oh, that's funny, you know, or that's cute, or whatever it is. You're like, but I'm not going to say that. But they're grabbing hold of something that's really true. And they're trying to use it in their relationship with you. Right? That we're family. Even here in chapter 16, you see a familial reference to this idea of brother in verse 11. Verse 12, two times. Right? And then you have in verse 15 the plural use of it, which just means sister, or brothers and sisters, siblings. Right? In verse 20, you have the idea of siblings again. He's using this familial language here. More than the references to family, though, we see words here like greet one another, hug each other, kiss each other, love being the constant, consistent currency being used. In verse 23, he talks about this grace of Jesus being with this church. Why would you need grace? You do if it's a family, because if it's friends, I can just say, I'm not friends with you anymore, and then we're done relationally. I'll go somewhere else. If I'm family, we all know what it's like to be in a family. You're in it. I don't just get to leave it, do I? I need grace. You need grace. I need that in our family. That's what we see here, this active, unified, welcome each other, family language. God, you guys, has set out from the very beginning of time to create a family where he is known as a father to that family. I'm just gonna quickly walk you through this. It's really helpful. Just consider Genesis 1, right? God made the first husband and wife. What do you say? Be fruitful, multiply, right? Have some babies, okay? Fill the earth, subdue it, make a family, right? 
But then what happens? When sin and death enter the world in Genesis 3, God makes a promise to create a new family through Eve's offspring, and that from then on there would be two families, the family of the serpent and the family from Eve. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, the serpent, and her offspring. This idea of offspring is continually picked up in Genesis chapter 12. We see God commission Abram, and he says what? Go with your family to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises an offspring from Abraham. We looked at this last summer. He's going to start a new family. And this lands you in the New Testament eventually. You can keep the thread going if you want, but it lands you in the New Testament where you have Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And what does he tell Nicodemus? He says, quote, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again meaning spiritual birth. What happens when you're born? You're born into a family, aren't you? You have a mommy and a daddy, don't you? Every birth has a family associated with it. You need to be born again, a new spiritual birth. What's a spiritual birth? Well, Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This being born again into a spiritual family is drawn out by Paul in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Then again in Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This gives definition to what it means then in Colossians chapter 1. Think about this stuff. What does it say about Jesus? He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's your older brother. If you don't believe me, Hebrews 2.11 says this. For he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, God's people, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, you, brothers. He calls you brother. The Bible is clear, you guys. God hasn't just saved you and sent you on your way. Right? He has drawn you out of the crowd. He's saved you. But then he turns you around and he reintroduces you to everybody again. And he gives you a whole new family. In other words, we not only got a hug and a holy kiss from Jesus, we were not simply invited to dinner and as an outsider and God's family's hanging out or something. No, we were adopted. We weren't merely strangers of God, we were enemies of God. And so we know Jesus has been the most hospitable one to us, although he didn't wait for you to come home. He left home to come and find you. He pursued you when you were an enemy of God. And he brought you home, and he called you family. And he makes you a part of a family. That's our story. This is what we're shaped by. And now as his family, as his body, we do the same because when we receive another believer into our family, just like we do with Matthew today when we get to see him baptized, right? They're that. They're family. That's what they are. So there's a fundamental relational change that, that has to, to change the way that I see you. I don't just get to see you as, as friend anymore. I don't get to see you as stranger anymore. I don't see you as acquaintance or somebody that rubs me the wrong way, whatever it is, right? I didn't mean to look over there, sorry. Um, 
right? I look at you and I fight to not make something true that isn't true. I fight to see something that is true. Just think about how weird all this is if it weren't for Jesus. If the gospel weren't true, then we should just keep our money. We shouldn't help others do things that don't directly impact us. We shouldn't be greeting strangers or people in general in these hospitable ways because I'm not your friend. We're not family. Why would I do that? These are real names, real people that must have been familiar to some people in this church and completely unfamiliar to other people. But it doesn't matter because what unites them isn't friendship. What unites them isn't biology. What unites them is Jesus. Is this what you think of when you think of church? Like, really? Is this what you think of? Is this how you see each other or you fight to see each other this way? Do you, do you has this truth moved from, from your head to your heart, you know? Uh, there's a quote on the screen by Soren Kierkegaard he says, the truth is a trap. You cannot get it without it getting you. You cannot get the truth by capturing it, only by it capturing you. That's how you know you got it, because it got you. Guys, this is truth. Does it have you? This is what church is and does. It frees us from us and makes us concerned about one another. Why? Because our relationships have changed because our relationships have changed. This is why when we hear of the hundreds that were massacred and died in Sri Lanka last Sunday, I don't just look at that and go, that's sad. I go, that's family. When a few weeks ago, Jacob got up here, one of our elders, and shared about the disasters and the flooding that happened in Papua, we didn't just go, that's sad. We go, no, those are, those are, that's family. And not just distant family. We have members of our own church from Papua, people that we know and love, like Navani, who I get to like, give a hug to this morning, you know, Gaas and Corey and so many others. I go, they're family. That's why we say, hey, uh, as you prosper, what can we do? And my goodness, you guys, we are here today. These doors are open and we're sitting in these seats. We're worshiping together because so many other churches in this country have lived this out. Our church is a reality today because of so many other churches that have lived into a chapter like this. We are grateful for all the churches that have seen our mission as their mission, even if they never set foot in Corvallis before. People in other churches from Montana and Texas and Oklahoma and Southern California um, have labored and supported us over the years to see a new church in Corvallis started. They've sent us people. They've sent resources. They've practiced hospitality. When me and my wife have gone and visited them, I'm honestly just, we're blown away. I'm like, I've never been received hospitably like this before. They've treated us like family the moment we set foot through their doors. This is why one of our vision distinctives as a church is to be that kind of church. Not because we just think it's a great idea, but because it, 
it's what the church does. The church is about itself outside of a local reality. We're a part of a universal reality as well. And the reason why is because of this chapter in part. This is why I'll never stand up here and say to you that church is an event. This is not a place for us to come and have a good experience. This is why we don't say that church is a classroom, because we're not just here to learn. We're here to be a family. It's a faith family with Jesus as our older brother and God as our father. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in Helena, Montana, and um, uh, Helena was considered a big city, okay? Uh, Helena had about 60,000 people in it, and um, uh, by comparison, because there's not a lot of people that live in Montana, you know, not a ton in other states, and uh, by comparison, all the cities that surrounded us were like tiny, so I, was, I thought I was pretty cool, you know? Daniel, you can, he's from Kalispell, he can attest to this, right? I was like, I'm from the big city, right? Helena, Montana. Do you realize that um, Helena is the same size as Corvallis? And I've lived in Corvallis for a decade now and I've never heard anybody be like, Corvallis is huge. I've never had anybody say that before. No one's ever thought of Corvallis as a big city, right? Why? Because we have Portland. I have something to compare it to that's much greater and bigger and grander than this, although we love Corvallis, right? Portland has what, 2.2 metro area or something like that? There's something greater to compare it to and it gives definition to what we are. In Montana, Helena was a big city because it gave definition to what other towns were, right? It, it defined it for some reason or another. For many of us, church has always been about me and that's all I have to compare it to. Because for too long, the only thing we compare it to is other versions of me. But we all have this deep embedded understanding, it's, it's about me. And if all I can compare it to is other people that think it's about me as well, then that's what I define it as. But if I slow down and I don't rush past 1 Corinthians 16, I have something bigger and grander and more beautiful to compare it to. And if I see it, and I don't just nod and yawn, it gives definition to what I think church is. And what I see that church is here is people doing life together for the glory of Jesus. It's something bigger. It's something better. Let's move to the big city. Let's not try to manufacture Something that isn't there, it's there. I seem to see it. And when we do, you guys, this truth you'll know has captured you. It won't just be a head thing anymore. And it'll be a beautiful thing. If you will, let's all stand together as we go into our time of response. I'm just gonna pray over us. Father, I'm so grateful that we can call you our Father, God, the maker of everything, that you've invited us into a relationship with you, God, that goes well beyond some sort of distant, cold thing, but you're, you're a Father to us. We're grateful for that, and we know that you're a Father to us because of Jesus and what he's done. God, we want to celebrate that now. 
as we take communion and we remember the sacrifice he made for us, or that he was the firstborn of the dead, you've created a new family through him. God, may this morning as we take communion as believers, Lord, that we would remember and see with fresh eyes one another as family, that we are one. This isn't about me, it's about us. It's not about us, it's about the universal church, Lord, and I pray that this response time would contribute to that. And Lord, I even pray as we go into a time where we get to baptize and celebrate Matthew and what you've done in his life, Lord, that we would truly see him as a brother, as family, Lord, and that you would continue to mature us as a church, Lord, in such ways that we would care about things way beyond us, Lord, for your glory, Lord Jesus, in this world, for your sake, amen.